Welcome to Talking Books. I'm Simon Mattox, and I read out loud for a living. Yes, I'm an audiobook narrator, and in this series of podcasts, I get together with an author whose book or books I've recorded, and we talk about writing, recording, and all things Talking Books. Okay, so, um, hello. Uh, I'm here this morning in a very tiny little booth, which is normally where I record my audiobooks, with Mike Hollow. Hello. Hello. Now, Mike, you have written six books that I've narrated, is that right? I think it's six now, yes. Yeah. I lose count sometimes because uh, I'm always working on the next one while the next one's coming out, and I'm working on one after that. So, Oh, are you? Yeah. So, so it's think, a pretty continuous process. It is for me, it? yes. I take a couple of months off in the summer to recover, but then <laughs> it takes me a year, getting on for a year to write one. And I've usually got bits of the next one in my head just slowly fermenting while I'm writing one. And that's when I'm writing it, that's when the previous ones come out. So I don't know which one is which. So it must get quite confusing. It does get confusing to me. I think I was speaking at an event once and somebody asked me a question. And by way of answer, I illustrated it from the previous book. And afterwards, my wife said, you know, you were talking about the one that hasn't come out yet. (laughs) I didn't know. I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm now halfway through recording The Camden Murder. Just so you know, that's, yes, that's, right. that's the one. That's good, yes, I know that presumably one. Yes. So, but you're writing another one at the moment then, are you? I'm starting out, yes. I've, I'm plotting the next one okay. and writing as I go a bit. Am I allowed time. to know what that's called? Well, it hasn't got a title okay. yet. No. All right. Um, but it will be it the, the something. Because the, the, the series tends to be, there's been the Canningtown murder, the Pimlico murder. They started out in uh, East London in West Ham. Yes. So the early ones are around that part and they the first one is just called the blitz detective because that's the that's right that's okay. the key character that's yes. who the detective inspector is the series is called that and then they start there's one in canning town one in custom house one in Docklands. Docklands yes and I, I, yeah. I chose that area to start with because the books are set in the blitz in the second world war and that part of the world was most heavily bombed at the beginning because it's where the docks were, the Royal Docks in East London. Right. And uh, also it's where I was born. So my birth certificate says West Ham, which is a matter of some pride to me. As a, are, you, are you a West Ham? I am are a, you a, come on, you Irons. I'm a lifelong, what I call a congenital West Ham supporter. <laughs> and it's a painful experience. Um, yes, yeah. yes, but, I do know. I have a couple of friends who are West Ham supporters. So I'm, I'm prepared to speak to someone who's a West Ham supporter. As a Chelsea fan... Well, but, I won't say anything. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> for me it was the 1966 World Cup final oh. when, of course, West Ham won it. Of course, the, the goal scorers all being from West Ham. Yeah, of course. Hurst, Moore, and Peters, because they were an amazing team in those they days, were, weren't they? Yes, and I think it proves to me that the more West Ham players you have in the England team, the better you do. <laughs> but I don't follow it obsessively. I don't watch all the matches. I just, you know, dip into it a bit no, because I'm, I think I'm it takes too much time takes you away from your blitz detective it does and that part of the world of course he's detective inspector jago john jago is his name he's moved on from there because i did want to start in a part of the world around west ham the old uh, what was then the essex county borough of west ham which doesn't exist anymore but now it's part of greater london um, but i knew that the day would come when he had to spread his wings and move on a bit to a wider canvas because mm. I'd, I would just have exhausted that area and there would be an implausible number of murders happening. Right? <laughs> a little, bit, a little so, bit like Midsummer Murders. Yes. As well as, you know, it's the most dangerous 
small village in, in England, yes, isn't it? It's yes. ridiculous the amount of you people would, that die. If anyone said, go and live in Midsummer <laughs> County, you would, yeah. you would say, no, no. But I, yes, I, I did um, eventually take him out of that area mm. into London more generally. And um, uh, in one of the early books, I thought this might well happen later on if the series gets long enough. And I built in a little escape route for him. Uh, for potential use later, and then use that later. So now he he roams across London mm. to different parts of the city, which is why the later ones, uh, like the most recent one, is the Pimlico murder, and the, the Camden murder is mm. coming out shortly. And it does mean that he operates on a, a broader footing now. Mm. There's a question which one of the uh, audiobook publishers sent to me, uh, saying, what's next? For John Jago, are there more cases coming his way or has there always been an end in sight? Brackets, we hope not. He is still going on because you're writing a new one. So is there an end in sight? Well, I mean, there's always going to be an end, isn't there? I, mean, sure. I won't go on writing them forever. I don't have an end in sight in the sense that, uh, say, J.K. Rowling says she had with the Harry Potter books that she had all, all of them plotted, right. the overall story plotted in her mind from the beginning. I don't do that. I have um, some running story uh, that goes through the... Yes, through I want to talk series. to you about the running story. Yeah. Dorothy. Oh, oh yes. Dear, yes. I love those scenes. Yes. I really I, do. I do too. I don't know how it will end though. I love recording those scenes. I think the dialogue is really well written. I get a bit frustrated with, with Jago as the director because I, I sort of want to go, just kiss her, for goodness sake, man. What are you doing? <laughs> but of course, you know, that's not that's not that world and that's not who he is as a, as a person. Um and she's, I mean, you know, Dorothy's moving it forward a little bit, I think, isn't she? I mean, well, I don't want to give it away, but, <laughs> but, but she's, yeah, she's, well, she's American. So she, in fact, what, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. What, why American? What, what led you to make her American? I thought it would just be interesting to have somebody in it who was from com- completely outside that mm. rather small world of, of London and still more at the beginning, East London. Um, I wanted to bring that part of the world to life by having characters who would plausibly and and realistically live in that part of the world. Mm. And at the same time, I thought it would be interesting to have someone who brought an outside perspective. And I thought a war correspondent from outside Britain would be a good person to have because then he or she would bring an intelligent perspective, if you like, an analytical perspective, someone mm. who would actually be paid to know what was going on here and to think about it and and interpret it back to a foreign audience. And I thought the obvious thing was to have uh, an American because there were American correspondents mm. operating in London then. And I came across a book at the time um, which was an autobiographical work by an American woman who'd been a war correspondent in London in 1940. So I thought, well, yes, clearly oh, this wow. would be a, a plausible role. Mm. So that's really how I ended up with Dorothy. She's stationed in London. She's a, an experienced war correspondent for a newspaper in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, she's previously reported from the Spanish Civil War, from the invasion of Poland, and she understands what's going on. She, she knows what's happening in the war. She understands what's happening in London because she's living there and she understands how it's being seen in America, which I think was a very interesting thing at the time because in 1940, America wasn't in the war and the United States was very divided over whether it should support the UK in the war 
or whether it should stay out. I mean, ob- an obvious issue, but it was a very live mm. issue. And uh, I thought it would just be interesting while exploring what it was like to be a Londoner in the Blitz. It would also be interesting to explore how that would seem to an American observer. Mm. So Jago gets lumbered with her at the beginning because they want someone to chaperone her around so that she doesn't tell the wrong story. And, of course, they get to know each other. They Indeed they do. And the romance, the, and the slow burn of the romance, but it's, it's great. I want them to get together. Yeah, I think... Uh, I just don't know what's going to happen. And I, I like that okay. because that makes it, to me, that's more interesting because she's certainly a more confident and outgoing person than Jago is. Mm. And that may be because she's American. It may just be because she's personality-wise, mm. she's just that. He's a man of his time, I hope. That's what I set out to create. So in terms of the voice that I give Jago, which basically is my voice, I remember the first time I did a little test and I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do remember this. I but, do, yes. But, and I gave him a bit, of, a bit more of a sort of London accent because I thought, you know, he's from, he's from West Ham, I'll make him a bit more like that. And you were like, no, don't do that. I don't like that. Don't do it. Which is fine. And it's also good, actually, as a narrator, to have that feedback because you're kind of doing it in the dark, really. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there are plenty of, plenty of scope in the books oh, for characters with that. Yes, But of it can be a bit, um, bit of a stereotype. Mm, and I, sure. I think, yeah, I think I, I love the way you do Jago's voice because I think you've got it. I mean, that's to me the way he would speak, the way he'd talk. And because uh, what I want, he's a, he's a fellow who left school. He did actually stay on to school till he was 16, which when he was at school, that was unusual because the school leaving age was 14. And if uh-huh. you were living in a place like West Ham, you would you would expect to leave school at 14 and go and become a whatever, you know, whatever mm. you could get work as. Mm. Um, it, Jago went to the local grammar school, and so he had the opportunity to stay on to 16 if he was bright enough. And so he's... I wanted him to be clearly smart. He's got to be smart to solve these murders. Sure. But wanted him to be a man of his time and a man of his place. And so he's not that sort of gall-blamed governor. Um He's, but he's nevertheless, he's, he's still from that part of the world. So I think the way you do his voice is, is just right. It's, you know, it really it captures what I see him. And I think with all the characters, of course, they're running around in my head. They're real in my head. And mm. as I'm writing, I can hear them. So I'm always interested to see how you do it because you come to them freshly thinking of you know, their character and their, their voice and you bring them to life separately to the way I bring them to life on the page. And I find that really interesting because right. you see the character and you give, him, you give them life. Well, um, that's good to hear. But have you ever, or have I ever done a character and you, and you just think, oh, no, what's he doing? You can be absolutely honest. I mean, has there been characters where you just go, no, that's just not how I... How no, I don't think so. Character. No, no, I think... Phew. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and in a way, it's, you know, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's your prerogative because you're you're bringing the book to life for an audio audience that's not what i'm doing i would respect your judgment in doing that because you you're better at making a mix of voices work than i am um the only one i've i feel a bit guilty about i think 
and I don't know what your experience was with this, um, in, I think it was the second book, and I don't actually have a copy of the audiobook for that, but in the, in the second book, uh, The Canning Town Murder, I had a character, a woman whose name was Flora MacLeod, and she had moved down to London as a young woman and married. And I wasn't thinking then about audiobooks. And so I made her a character who came from the Isle of Lewis, came from Stornoway. Okay. And now I look back and think, well, I didn't think about audiobooks when I created that character or that accent in my head. What on earth did Simon do when he had to record that? Um, oh well, I would no, I would have loved that because I love a, I love a Scots accent. You see, so I mean, for me, for me, the more the more accents, the better in a way, because only because I mean, a I, because I enjoy doing them and because I can do them. Funny enough, the Scotland one was I, we moved to Scotland. We we used to live in in uh, Chertsey in Surrey when I was a kid, and then we moved up to Scotland when I was seven or eight because my dad got promoted up there, and I, and. And I got really bullied uh, because I was a Sassanac. So I used to walk out of the house and talk like that in order to try and sort of fit in with my mates, you know, uh, which didn't work particularly. But anyway, um, and then and then we moved back down. So it's funny. So, I mean, a Scottish accent is something I'm quite comfortable with. But um, so I probably would have loved that. I mean, I'm sure I did love it. For the Camden murder, you sent me a, a list of, of characters and a sort of character breakdown, which is so useful and so helpful. And um, you said, you know, there's couple I've given this guy and he might have a slight slight Brummy accent and this one, you know, a slight um, sort of Cambridgeshire accent, which is great because it's hard sometimes, especially if it's set in London, you know, you get so many characters and they're all from sort of, you know, the East End. So it's a bit hard to differentiate sometimes between who's talking, um, which is why it's great. So, you know, Jago's just kind of pretty much me. Um in my head, anyway, and uh, and Craddock, of course, is younger, and so you know he's got that slightly lighter voice, and he's a bit more London, you know. And I also love the fact that Craddock is always hungry. Did you base him on anybody? No, I think he just grew in my mind, and that's something I love about writing fiction. It's just the fact that you create a world, and in my case, I'm trying to recreate a real world of London in the Blitz in 1940, but nevertheless, I'm creating a world. But I'm also creating people, and I love that because they start out as a name and a rough idea of their character and background. But as I develop the story and as I write it, not only do their names change several times, in fact, just this morning I realised I'd have to change the provisional name I've given to a character because I used the same name in a couple of books ago. Uh, right. But not only do their names change, but because their personality, their character grows... And I, I love that because I'm then getting to know them a bit. And I find then, as I'm writing, I'm thinking to myself, hang on, I write something, a bit of dialogue. Then I think, no, she wouldn't say that because that's not the kind of person she is. She mm. doesn't think like that. And I find that a very mysterious experience because they are still made-up people, but they do take on a bit of a life of their own. And so with Craddock being always hungry, I think that's, as far as I recall, that's just something that emerged as it were as mm. I got to know him and I thought it would be a fun aspect of his character as a, it reflects his youth I mean he's a grown-up policeman he's but he's still young and he's much younger and less experienced than Detective Inspector Jago so that comes yes, out in the relationship. He's, he's trying to find enough food to feed himself in yeah. the midst of rationing yeah. as well which is not, not, yeah. not yes. always easy yes. is it? So, yeah. yeah I think with with regard to the different accents. I'm much more aware now as I'm writing 
now that the books are in audio, I'm more aware of things like accents. So I probably wouldn't develop a character who came from Tuva in Siberia and whose hobby was a throat singing, whatever it is, which you may have heard, but they have a very strange uh, cultural facility, which is it would be a challenge to anyone doing a voiceover. But I, I'm conscious as I write that when you're doing an audio version, I'm guessing it would be helpful if I gave you some scope to adopt accents. Yeah, sometimes, yes. Yeah. So I try not to be too specific, but I just think I try to identify opportunities for a character to be from somewhere else if you want to play it like that. And in some cases, the, the plot requires it. So um, mm. in the Pimlico murder, there's a character who says um, something like, well, when I, I moved down from Derbyshire, and I thought if he says I moved down from Derbyshire, that means when Simon comes to do the, the voice version, if you want to, you can make him from Derbyshire. But if you fancy making a slightly different accent, well, I hadn't said he's from, I just said he, he's just said he, he moved down. So he's, he has lived in I Derbyshire. I moved down from Derbyshire yeah. by way of Bristol. And uh, I've never looked back. Yeah, exactly. So I think um, that's just my way of giving you some opportunities to decide what accents to deploy because it is it is really useful i think in in an audiobook to have that way of discerning between characters when you're listening yes um, it's certainly easier yeah. well i mean i hope it's easier for for the listener as well i mean i know because i i tend not to do it now but sometimes especially on audible you can read reviews people post reviews of of the novel and also of, of the narration very often and uh, sometimes people are very nice and sometimes people are very honest and just say oh, why does he do all these blooming accents i hate it you know i wish he just not do it and it i mean i i listen to audiobooks a lot myself not my own and it's it's interesting because sometimes people can do it and they do it very well and it's great and other times i mean i listened to a, a very long australian novel recently and and the woman didn't do any kind of no differentiation between characters voices at all but you can still kind of pretty much follow it and it didn't it sort of didn't matter you know do you do you listen to audiobooks i don't have habitually no, no. Uh, i think i would if i were doing long car journeys it is a great uh, way of having something to interest you when you're on a very long car journey. Mm. Um, but I don't habitually listen to books, um, except yours, of course. Uh, <laughs> so, but then, of course... Well, are they the, mine or are they yours? I think they're yours, well, really. The thing is, with the ones you do of The Blitz Detective, I've already read the book. Yes. In fact, I know the book quite well. <laughs> in fact, you've already written the book. <laughs> well, that too, yes. yes. I guess it's something that you have to have a, an aptitude for and a skill in. And I think, it seems to me, you have a very wide range of accents. Is that... Yes. Is that yeah, true? yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I would say that's true. Yeah, yeah. and I, it's something I love. And it's just, it's just something I've always been able to do. And, and it's great, you know, to be able to do audiobooks and actually use them. It's a really fun thing and, and, a, and a great thing to be able to do, you know. And why do you think it is that you've got that aptitude? Um... Do you know, I really don't know. I mean, I think, I think I started to be aware of it in Scotland, actually, because of that thing of just being able to sort of try and mimic the other people, you know, that I was at school with, and they would be like, you're a Sassanac, we've got to get you. So I, I was sort of like, well, if I can talk like you, then I'm not a Sassanac anymore, am I? I'm just like you. Of course, which didn't work, but um, I still used to get beaten up. But, um, but um, so that was the first time, I think, that I really became aware that I could 
sort of I had a facility to do it and it's something that I've just always been able to do you know I wish I could say I spent you know many hours a day learning the Geordie but I you know I, I just don't it's just something that I can I can do I can hear something and, and mimic it you know or yeah it is I mean it is mimicking obviously that's what it is but also you have to try and you have to, I mean you have to try and make it sound real I mean like with Rita I mean I love Rita I love Rita's voice because she's so you know it's that lovely sort of all right, dearie, and all that love, and have a nice cup of tea, and you know all that. I mean, that's you know that's my grandma. I mean, used to speak like that. So I mean, there's there's stuff that that you kind of draw on, I suppose, um, voices that you remember, and and all that kind of thing. Did the narration bring out any new dimensions to your characters that you didn't expect? Oh, that's difficult to say. I think the answer is probably yes, in that you, I guess, take the written version, and you bring it to life. And as you bring it to life, it's got you in it as well as me. So as I'm writing this character, I might think, yeah, she's really sarcastic. And you read it and you might think differently. You might not think she's really sarcastic. You might think there might be reasoning she's a bit intimidated as well. You might see in what I've written the potential for a slight variation in the character. And so... To me, that is fine because I think that your your job is to make it work, to bring it to life. It's it's rather like, you know, I'm I'm usually spending quite a lot of time during the day just sitting by the phone waiting for Spielberg to ring because uh, I don't want to do miss you know, it. I do, I do that as well. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. ring, does he? He doesn't. No, I don't think he's got my number properly. I think. Well, I don't know, but I just don't. I feel it'd be disrespectful to expect him to leave a message, so I tend to sit there just waiting, <laughs> just in case. Um, which does put a bit of pressure on the writing time, <clears> but it's <throat> probably going to be worth it in the long run. But I think uh, when he does phone and makes these into a movie, I I would not expect him to make the movie that I'd see in my head because he's good at making movies Mm. and if he wants to make a good movie where it's different, that's fine with me it's your job to make it work as an audio production Mm. and so I let go of it because you make out of it what you think it needs and it may well mean that you play that character differently to the way I would have seen her in my mind and why not but the only thing I sometimes think if I put in some specific reference that might ruin it for you because you might have gone through the whole thing playing this character as someone who maybe she always drops her H's and then I've written a line towards the end that says and I hope you notice that I never drop my H's you know then you'd have to go back to the beginning and re-record it pronouncing all the H's. I have done that before to my shame there was I mean I you know you should always read the book. That's what I say. Because I, I, uh, I teach some students at uh, Bristol Old Vic Theatre School, um, audiobooks and uh, commercials and stuff. Anyway, and I say to, you know, say to them, the first thing is always, always read the book. But there was this one book. It was so awful. It was set in 13th century Scotland. It was a kind of, it was just a soft porn romp, basically. Anyway, I didn't read it in, in advance. And there's a king from Burgundy. So arrives, and so I give him a, a French accent, you know, and uh, so, so, you know, two thirds through the book, one of the courtiers turns to another and said, it is amazing, is it not, how the king has no trace of a French accent? <laughs> and I was like, oh, for God's sake. So I had to go back through the whole recording, find out what I'd oh, done dear. and uh, lose his accent. That's something I, I was interested in asking you, you know, because... I had no idea whether you would read the book 
all the way through before you started recording it or whether you'd start at the beginning because there's an argument, I suppose, for not knowing the end because um, rather like I think uh, it's something that Lee Child said about his Jack Reacher novels Mm. that he starts writing not knowing what the end's going to be, what's going to happen because he wants to be in the same shoes as the reader. He doesn't want to know what happens next. He wants it to take him by surprise. Mm. Uh, That's not the way I write, but I admire the way he writes. And uh, there's some arguable virtue, I suppose, in not reading the book before you start. But on the other hand, you've wasted a lot of time that you're probably not paid for. You know, maybe. And either way, you yeah, might have to, I if mean, you're going to re-record it, that's... No, I know what you mean. And I've thought about that because obviously, yes, especially in, in crime novels, and I, I tend to do a lot of crime novels, obviously I find out who the murderer is. Um, but what you don't want to do is give them a kind of, oh, I'm a murderer voice. I've done novels whereby the murderer is speaking so for instance like you've got at the start of a chapter you've got in italics the sort of the murderer's thoughts but also then the murderer features elsewhere in the book and and we the audience don't know he's the murderer or she's the murderer and that's quite difficult as a narrator because you think i don't i don't want to give this away i certainly do do think that as a narrator you have to read the book to know what's going on really yeah that makes sense Uh, but you but not signal it yeah and the signaling is has to be so subtle, doesn't it? Because mm. um, back in the 1920s, I think, and a lot of fans of crime fiction will be familiar with this, some crime authors started a thing called the Detection Club, um, which writers like Dorothy L. Sayers and others less well-known today formed what they called the Detection Club, dining group of writers thing. And um, there was a member of the group who was Monsignor Ronald Knox, who wrote crime fiction, and he drew up a list of rules. It was a tongue-in-cheek set of rules Mm. for crime writers and uh, for example I think under no circumstances should there ever be identical twins in your (laughs) (laughs) but one of them was there should be enough clues along the way to ensure that when you get to the end of reading the story you can see that the identity of the murderer is plausible right but you don't notice it on the way and so there might be tiniest clues some of which will be red herrings and I find it a pleasurable challenge to maybe put some of those in a book. Maybe I don't. Um, but I think also it's perhaps even a greater challenge for you because I guess you need to decide the tone of voice that you use mm. in everything the character says because there might be something that's significant in terms of the plot. And if you over-egg it, you give it away, and if you understate it, it's yes. wasted. I suppose I approach it so that I try and play the, I mean, without sounding too kind of poncy about it, I try and play the truth of each little scene, so that if a woman who's done something bad or a man who's done something bad is trying to, com- to convince the detective in this scene that they didn't, then you play it as straight as you can. You don't kind of signal anything you don't give him you don't make him stutter or you know or something you don't make him implausible yeah i guess that's what you were saying you you, you make them as plausible as you can yes yes when you write do you listen to music or do you have silence i do like listening to music but i find when i'm writing it becomes a distraction mm. i have tried doing that because i know some people who work very well with music but i do find that apart from the fact that you've got to occasionally stop to 
change the music or mm. whatever. Um, in the end, I find it too much of a distraction, so I don't. I write with silence, mm. and I try to minimise distractions. I, I did try, for example, listening to some dance band music from 1940. Right, yes, I wondered, were you kind of going period with the, with the yeah. music? Yeah, but then again... I guess some people might think I, I put a, a 1940 trilby hat on or something to get in character. I like to think of you doing that. Yeah. Like. Yes, I don't do that. <laughs> I always do. When, I, when I'm recording, I always wear a trilby. I'm sure you do, novels, yes, yes. And uh, have an unlit pipe near me at all yes. times. And special shoes. Special yes. shoes. I have my 1940s shoes. Yes. Yes. yes, so I don't have to get in character, but I do find that I, I write scenes that I can see. So although... I'm writing words, obviously. I tend to see a chapter in my head. I see the characters in my mind. I see them playing out that scene together. Mm. And I write what I can see in my mind. Well, there's quite a lot of dialogue in my, in my books. But then I think dialogue is what moves the story along mm. and brings the characters to life. And a, a story without dialogue, I think, to me, is too leaden and mm. dull. So I picture a scene. Let's say it's an argument between two characters and I, I write down what I see and hear, and then, of course, I have to work on it later, but essentially I try to capture that dialogue, and that means letting the characters speak, letting the characters have the discussion that they would have, the argument they would have, mm. and hopefully that makes it work for audio. Well, I think it does, yes. I mean, I would say that, you know, as, as an actor, as somebody who, who has to record, your dialogue. I think you, you, I think you write dialogue really well, and 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 the scenes, not all of them, obviously, because it depends on the scene. But some of the scenes, especially, I think between between Jago and Dorothy, in some of the the previous books, I've been very moved by them. You know, especially he, he was talking about when he's um, was in the the Great War, and and some of the you know when he was in the the, the foxhole, and there was a German officer, the German guy that he kills, and and yeah, you know, it's very very moving, very moving. I think, and and. And just and a delight to to record to to you know to read actually because it because sometimes you know there are books that I've read in the dialogue and you're just thinking oh boy this is not not easy to to kind of give it some kind of life off the page but yours absolutely mm. well, thank you. has that I thought um, with uh, Inspector Jago I I wanted him to be old enough in 1940 to have had some experience of the First World War. Mm. And so uh, with his... And also he'd have to be of an age to be a detective inspector. You, know, you wouldn't be a 22-year-old detective inspector. But um, I gave him a couple of years of experience in the trenches because I thought for that whole generation, whether they were in the armed forces or not, it was such a tumultuous time to live through to live through mm. the first world war and then through the post-war you know the spanish flu as it was called then but the global flu pandemic just after the first world war and then wall street crash and the great depression and then the rise of fascist dictatorships in europe and eventually the outbreak of war all over again mm. when it was only 21 years yes yeah, so i, I, I have sort of realized i was one of those questions i'd, I'd written down, down to ask you is that the first world war looms large in, in your novels. And, and um, obviously, Jago was in that war and it had a huge impact on him. And before I started recording these books, I hadn't really appreciated how close together these wars were. 
and how that first war did impact so hugely on, on the second war and people who, who were around then and the, the kind of echo of that first war going through the second. You know. Well, I think it did have such an impact on everyone. Mm. And for me, it's uh, I'm of an age that both my grandfathers were in the army in the First World War. My right. dad was called up for the army and fought in Italy in the Second World War. And I remember as a boy thinking to myself, well, you know, my granddad was in the First World War, my dad was in the Second World War, so I guess when I'm 18, I'll be a soldier in the Third World War. I was very young then, but that was mm, the, mm. honestly how I thought, because you only know a little of history when you're yes, young, but you know more from your family. And I just thought, well, this is what I'll be doing, because this is what you do, this is mm. life. And I am fascinated by how they coped. I remember, like most of that generation, my dad didn't talk about yeah. his experience of the war. Right. And I yeah. didn't ask because you didn't you didn't ask no. and they didn't no. say it was just little things that, that sort of slipped out over the years one of which was my dad saying he'd been in the army from 1942 to 47 and wow he was in um, a reconnaissance regiment about which i knew nothing i knew that he was in the reconnaissance corps in italy because i asked him once what he was in and he said well i was in 4-4 Reconnaissance Regiment, 56th London Division, 8th Army. And that stuck in my mind. But it was only after he died, he gave me his old cap badge for the Reconnaissance Corps. I thought, I'll find out more about this. And I tracked down a book about it and discovered that their role had been to go in advance of the British infantry, to go ahead and seek out the enemy and either you know, blow up the bridge or try to capture some German troops um, and I thought that's extraordinary and he th he'd said that it was quite difficult getting a job coming back in 1947 the jobs had all gone because when the, end, the war ended people came back to their jobs right. and he said in some notes he'd written and left to me which I saw after he died he just said I'd learned a lot about how to kill people but precious little else and so it was difficult getting a job but he was the wow. most I don't know Nice person, yeah, good dad and mm. a good friend to people mm. and widely liked and respected. And I thought, how did that happen? How did that experience produce men who weren't psychopaths? Mm. And the First World War, how did they cope with the trauma? Yeah. You know, just fascinating. And I think it was a fascinating dimension of Jago that I thought worth exploring because his experience in the First World War certainly has influenced the way he is. And I didn't want to have a detective hero from that period who was a, the sort of typical dysfunctional, alcoholic, no. serial wife-beater no. kind no. of problem character. I just thought, yeah, from then, if he'd gone through that, he might well have learned to be a sympathetic and decent mm. and honourable and faithful sort of man who still has a side to him which is not going to just be under someone else's thumb. So he has a wry attitude towards some of his superior officers. He sometimes has his own idea of what justice is that might not be strictly what the law says. Mm. Uh, he's his own man, but he's a, a decent man. And I hope that, I think that comes out in his relationships with oh, I th the well, other I characters. Well, I think so, very much so. I mean, it seems to me, yes, absolutely. I think he's a very honourable man. And and it's interesting what you say about, you know, your father and everything. Because, yes, I mean, we, we, we live in a society now where, you know, if something happens, you go and 
talk about it generally to a therapist or to a, somebody you know in that situation or you get you go and see a gp and you get some sort of pill to help you and and but i think those men largely didn't and it's just an interesting form of, of sort of masculinity which which i think has changed yeah it? you know yes we live in a different world now mm. and all i wanted to do was recreate that world of 1940 mm. and be faithful to it mm. because i think to me that's more interesting i don't particularly enjoy reworkings of history i like uh alternative history novels i'm thinking of which recreate say that that same wartime period but i don't like it if they are anachronistic and it's all too easy to graft 21st century values onto 20th century characters mm. and i find that too discordant that it distracts me when i'm reading it or listening to it or watching mm. it to me as a writer the you know, one very important thing is just to entertain your reader another very important thing is to hold their attention the story should hold the reader's attention whether it's in print or in film or in voice mm. and it's like weaving a spell if you like and i find if if there's an anachronistic you know something that doesn't ring true for that period in what someone says or the way they react if it doesn't ring true for the period you're creating then it breaks that spell i like it when it's more true to the period at the same time, I find there are some things from the past which we really wouldn't accept now and are shocking to us. And I don't, I don't want to put that sort of stuff into no. it but because then that, you're no. just potentially offending people. Mm. But, and sort of perpetuating something, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I think bringing out some of the um, positive aspects of the way people were under duress mm. in the war, I, I think that's got its place. And also, I do like to bring out not just the people who are doing a good job protecting other people in the blitz, you know, air raid wardens or whatever, but the crooks as well. Mm. And the, <laughs> you know, the yeah, so on which the there, were, there, were, there were many, you know, yeah. yeah. Blitz in some ways was, was a, a good breeding ground for them because of, you know, the blackouts and this, that and the other, and they were able to operate under the cover of darkness very often. And Yes, crime went up in the blitz because... Right, yeah, the, the blackout. Yes, yeah, yeah, it was okay. a, the perfect cover for all sorts the black of black market and all of that. The black and, market, yeah, yes, and yeah, yeah. the 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 number of people who made money out of nicking stuff and flogging it, you know, mm. and because it's uh, it's real life, it's people, it's what we're like, mm. and uh, that contrast between the the self sacrifice of people who would lose their own life, yeah, you know, as a member of the fire brigade putting out fires, and many of them died in the course of their duty and they were civilians simply trying to protect other people mm. and uh, just exploring the contrast between people who had that kind of motivation while at the same time there'd be people stealing steel helmets from air raid precautions and posing as rescue workers and going in and really? looting places all of which happened you know wow. that sort of thing happened because it was the past and it was mm. an epic time Mm. But it was people, it was human beings, mm. Like, mm. like you and me, and uh, we are mixed and we do those things. Yeah. Not suggesting that <laughs> you're a cat. No, I, I, I don't do that no more, Gav. <laughs> those days are behind me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I guess we should probably, you know, wrap it up and go and have a cup of coffee or something. But um, thank you. Oh, thank you. It's, it's been, been really, really interesting and really great to talk to you, to meet you. It's been great talking to you too, and... Uh, I really enjoy your work. Thank well, you. Well, thank you, and I really enjoy yours. <laughs> we could just become friends for life now, forever. Oh, okay. I just love that character. <laughs>
That was fun. Well, Peter, what did you think of that? Mr. Hollow seemed a very nice man. Yeah, yeah, really nice. Yeah, no, great. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, um, what, Peter, you seem slightly hesitant. No, 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 it's not. No, I mean, it was very nice, very nice. You know, very interesting. And that, um, it's just, um, well, what? He didn't bring any food with him, did he? No, no, he, he, he didn't bring any food with him, Peter, but then he wouldn't really, would he? Well, no, no, it's, no, I suppose not. It's just that, you know, I was a bit peckish while he was chatting away there and I thought, you know, little sandwich, piece of cake, would have been nice. You know, he could have brought something like that, you know. I, I see what you're saying, but um, I think it's unlikely that, that, that an author would necessarily carry around sandwiches and pieces of cake for, for his characters. No, I, I understand that, sir. You know, I'm not, I'm not, not saying uh, nothing bad about him and that. It's just that, you know, I'm, I, I'm really hungry. Here we are, dear. Spam and pickle sandwich, a large slice of fruitcake and a nice cup of tea. Oh, thanks, Rita. That's fantastic. Not at all, my dear. Anything for you, Inspector Jago? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Thanks, Rita. Besides, we're... Not actually in a cafe, are we? We're just in a recording studio. There's not actually a sandwich, is there? Well, no, I suppose not. But if you're just going to destroy the illusion for the listener... Well, I'm, I'm not trying to destroy anything. I'm just trying to be, you know, realistic. Realism's all very well, dear, but it doesn't put food on the table, does it? Um, no, I suppose not. Now, put on that nice sound effect again and behave yourself. Uh, yeah, yes, Rita. What did you think of, uh, of Mr. Holland, Rita? Oh, I thought he was lovely, dear. Ever so handsome. Do you think you could put in a word for me? Um, well, I, I, I certainly, um, certainly can try, Rita. Um, Dorothy, you, you apparently seem to be here um, uh, as well. Um, hi. Hi. Um, w- w- what did you think? Um, did you I- enjoy the, um, the interview? Oh, yeah, really. No, I thought it was terrific. I thought your questions were, you know, kind of interesting, but not that probing. If you want me to be really honest with you, John. Right, right. Um, I loved the way he was talking about my character. You know, all, all the past jobs I'd done. He really seems to know his stuff, doesn't he? Yes, no, absolutely, he does. Um, I was trying to, to get some idea of where where the uh, the, the potential relationship um relationship the um, the, the the friendship sorry i, I should say between uh, between you and uh, and i um detective inspector jago uh where it was going um but he didn't seem to know well he's not the only one john is he no no he's um, he's not Excuse me, sir. I was just wondering, uh, what's an anachronism? Sorry, Peter. Anachronism. Mike Hollow said he doesn't like them. What are they? It's not anachronism, Peter. It's an anachronism. It's a person or a thing that is uh, chronologically out of place in a different time that it doesn't belong in. Oh. Oh, OK. Thanks. Sweet. Are you sure I can't get you something to eat, Inspector? Smashed avocado on toast? Ham and cheese panini? Um, uh, no, no, thank you, Rita. Um, actually, could I, could I get a flat white? A flat white what? 
Whoa, you weren't about Mr. Jago. I tell you what, I'll get you a nice cup of tea. Here, even better, I've got a nip of brandy out the back. I'll just pop and get it. That'll sort you out. Um, uh, thanks, Rita. I think that would be very welcome. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to hear more in the series, please visit our website, www.talkingbooks.org.uk. Talking Books.